Well, good morning again. I'm Tom, and uh, we're glad you're here on this uh, very beautiful day. Uh, my wife and I had a glorious vacation in Colorado this summer, and uh, I was sitting out on the deck uh, reading my book, um, and imagine with me it was about sunset time. Sky above was crystal blue at 8,000 feet, and the evening was perfectly still. I don't know what caught my eye, but I looked to the western horizon, and it was perhaps one of the most spectacular sunsets I've ever seen. The western sky was on fire. And as I looked a little more, I screamed out to Liz. Liz, look, quick, come. You got to see this. And she walked on the deck, looked to the western sky. And we both marveled. Maybe it was two minutes long or a minute, but we could not not utter words of just rapturous delight. We were awestruck. Now, whether it is the beauty of a sunset like that or the miracle of a newborn baby that we hold in our arms, you know that perfectly delicious meal that arrives at your table, or yes, that stunning come-from-behind Royals victory. Can't say the Chiefs yet. <laughs> or that goosebump orchestral performance that stuns every part of you. When we encounter such beauty, such grandeur, we cannot not help but praise. What captures our hearts with delight, we inevitably praise. May I suggest to you that praise is the highest language of love. And what we love, we praise. But when it comes to praising God, it's often difficult for us, is it not? Don't we often struggle with praising God? If I were to ask you this morning, do you love God? I would suggest that most of you would probably go, yes. But if you're like me, I would suspect you also would be honest and say, praising God isn't always easy to do. So why might praising God be difficult? I've thought about that quite a bit. And in my own journey, I think first and foremost, I have the hardest time praising God when I feel disappointed in Him. Maybe you do too at times. A deep loss that makes no sense. Dreams that are shattered. Loneliness that greets you day after day. Sometimes it's prayers that go unanswered year after year. It's hard to praise someone we feel disappointed in. And praising God also may be difficult in your life 
and in my life because our busy lives are so cluttered and noisy with distractions. How can we even think to praise God, let alone actually praise Him, if we are not attentive to His ongoing presence in our daily lives and the world all around us? For many of us, the black hole of our self-absorption means simply that God is out of sight, out of mind. Praise is nowhere to be found. And if we've learned some things in our message series so far, we have gathered a very important truth that prayer flows from a loving heart, a heart that is attentive to God. I'm going to suggest that the psalmists tell us that prayer begins and it ends with attentiveness to God. Some of the psalmists will say attentiveness to His holy inspired Word. But as we will see this morning, the focus is on His majestic world. Now let's remember as we have been exploring the psalms and extracting from them very important truths in the scaffolding of prayer in our lives. If you've been a part of our series in the Psalms, we have been reminded each week that the Psalms are the prayer book of Jesus. It's the prayer book He used. And they are the primary prayer tutorial for us. We have discovered, just in review, I want to remind us of the continuity and the connectivity of these Psalms that will help us, whether we've been in each message or you're here for the first time or you've missed a couple, here are the five foundational truths that we have uncovered as the Psalms progress in continuity and consecutive order by design of the arrangement of the Psalms. First, we encountered the importance of attentiveness or paying attention. Next, we looked at the importance of transparency or be vulnerable before God. Third, we looked at the rhythm of prayers, and we said we are to make prayer a habit. Fourth, we looked at the importance of confessing our sin honestly and humbly. And last week, we unpacked sometimes a kind of foreign idea that prayer embraces lament. Lament not only injustice and evil in the world, but ultimately lament is a longing for home. Now, this morning, as we turn to Psalm 104, we cover a sixth truth, and that is cultivating a praiseful heart because praise is God's highest language of love. It is also prayer's ultimate aim and destiny. Theologian Eugene Peterson says it beautifully when he says, all prayer, no matter how desperate its origin, no matter how angry and fearful the experiences it traverses, ends up in praise. It does not always get there quickly or easily. The trip can take a lifetime, but the end is always praise. See, praise is an essential way we grow in greater love for God. Praise, like nothing else, reorders the loves of our hearts. And so the question for us is, how do we grow in praise? Or as some I've heard say, I like it, how do we get our praise on? If we are going to cultivate a lifestyle of prayerful praise, 
we need to address two important questions which this psalm directly addresses in text. The first one is, what do we, what do we praise God for? What do we praise God for? And secondly, how do we praise God? What do we praise God for and how do we praise God? If you haven't already turned there, turn to Psalm 104 as we enter into this beautiful and brilliant and stunning Hebrew poetry over 4,000 years old, or at least three plus. What do we praise God for? The psalmist will tell us in his poem that we praise God for who he is and what he does. For who he is and what he does. First, his focus is on praising God for who he is. You'll notice in verses 1 and 2 of the psalm, this is the focal point of praise first. Psalm, one and two, or psalm 104, verses 1 and 2 begin, Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. Now, I want you to notice, as the psalmist begins his Hebrew poetry of praise, he pays particular attention to the magnificence of God's personhood. It is as if the psalmist steps back and he says to God, God, you are looking really good in your cosmic neighborhood. And he highlights it. Notice the poetic imagery. There's a royal splendor of clothing wrapped metaphorically in God's brilliance. There is splendor in his clothing. There is majesty. And the picture of the progression of the poetry is he is covered from head to toe with dazzling light. You'll notice the psalmist's usage of the words translated in English, very great, begin the echoing of something you must not miss. The echoing of Psalm 104 echoes in progression and thought Genesis 1, each day of creation. And here early on, he begins right away, both connecting the beginning of light in day one and the exclamation of God's glory and joy at the end of day six. He echoes very good what God says at the end of Genesis 1 in six days of creation when God in giddy delight says, I've outdone myself. This is amazing. Wow, amazing. Extraordinarily good. The language is God is extraordinarily good and great. And praise begins when we capture the glorious sense of the heavens and God's incomparable majesty as creator and maker of everything. The psalmist wants to know there's no one in his class. He is incomparably great and glorious. And then he begins to shift right away. You'll notice, secondly, for 30 sequential verses, we praise God for who he is. No, just for what he does. So he moves from who he is to what he does. The psalmist zeroes in on God's magnificent work You'll notice, as creator and sustainer of the universe, he gives great attentiveness, and I want you to hear the echoing of the footsteps of the psalmist and the distant echoes of Genesis 1. Read this psalm again this week or today, and you'll begin to hear the echoing, the psalmist's path of praise, tiptoes along the six days of creation. Let me just give you a little bit of that tiptoeing, okay? Day 1, verse 2 at the end, is the day of light. In creation. And God says, let there be light. 
Day two is run on the heels in verses three and four of Psalm 104, water, clouds, and wind. Do you see that? Day three is on the heels of that in verse five through nine, the earth and the mountains. Do you get the picture? Now, what's stunning to us is day six, where humans arrive in creation, are not highlighted until verse 15 and just barely touched on and then featured in verse 23, where we are depicted as joining God in cultivating the world and keeping the garden. This is important because the psalmist wants us to remember that against the cosmic universe and God's majestic creation, humans are just a mere speck of cosmic dust. He wants us to feel how incredibly small we are and how immense God is because in that intersection, praise erupts. It's not just the majesty of God, it's the puniness of man that bring us to praise. We can't help but realize as the psalmist pulls back the canvas of the universe in front of our eyes how small we are and our puniness. Most of us have had that experience, haven't we? Looked into the sky at night. I've seen lots of starry skies in my age all across the world. Brilliant evenings starry skies and every time i look up into the heavens on a starry night i can't help but be flooded with a sense of awe how about you at the adler planetarium in chicago it's a brilliant planetarium i encourage you if you haven't gone there one of the finest i think in the world there's a place where the hubble telescope is reaching into the vast universe and above it is the brilliant quote of 18th century philosopher, German philosopher, Immanuel Kant, which Immanuel means what? God with us, by the way. Kant's quote greets you where the Hubble reaches beyond you. And his quote is powerful. Immanuel Kant says, two things astound me. The law within me in the sky above me. This is what the psalmist said. Psalm 8 begins this, right? How majestic is your name, Lord. It says, when I consider your heavens, the work, the intricate work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, what is man that you even notice him? <laughs> See, that sense of smallness and God's greatness is the intersection that catapults us to praise. And here we see it in this beautiful poetry of 104. The brilliance of God's work, His creative hands, is on display for us, not only to see, but to join in with the psalmist in praise. Let's keep in mind that we may think of these psalms as nature psalms, but they are really creator psalms. For the focus of the psalms is not on what is made ultimately, but the one who made it. And notice how the psalmist says, the visible world you see points to the invisible maker of the world. We are to worship. See, we tend to be impressed, don't we, with all our human accomplishments, and humanity has accomplished great things. But when we set it against the backdrop of God and His master architecture and worker, we are stunned into our own puniness. God's multifaceted vocation, do you see it, is on display right in front of our awestruck eyes. Look with me for just a moment in verses 2 through 6. And again, you want to look more close, closely at this. God is seen as a brilliant artist, the architect. You see that? The engineer, the construction worker, all in one. Let's not forget that 
The creation account in Genesis 1 begins, and God, God created. God introduces himself in special revelation as a, as a worker. Let's not forget that, and we are made in his image. So again, the psalmist is refraining Genesis 1 beautifully here as the master architect. Notice also verses 14 through 15. God is the master chef. I love that because I love to eat. And notice he prepares food that not only nourishes, but do you notice wine that what? Gladdens the heart. It's joy. God is not only the creator, he is the great satisfier of our life. Notice just quickly verses 16 through 18, God is like the zookeeper. It's kind of humorous, but that's the picture. Verses 19 through 23, he's the astronomer. Verses 24 through 26, he's the marine biologist. Don't you love verses 27 through 30? He is the master planner. See, the amazing work God does reveals the amazing person he is. God's creative brilliance is an outpouring of who he is. And who he is and what he does is inextricably and intricately connected because they both give us a picture of his awesome glory. Psalm 19 picks up this Hebrew word glory and says of God only, not only our praise of God's word, but his heavens. And says the heavens, what? Shout the glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge of the glory of God. Notice with me here in Psalm 104, what's missing. One of the things you want to do when you read the scripture is not only ask what's there with great attentiveness, but ask what is missing that you would expect. In Hebrew poetry particularly, sometimes that is one of the most important things not to miss. So what do I mean? Still with me? You'll notice that there is little, and I'm going to say if any, because that's where I would hang my hat, little if any mention of the seventh day of creation, the day of rest. Certainly it's not explicit. I think it's absent. Some people see a little bit of a stretch in verse 31. But whether there's a very, very small emphasis subtly, or I believe no emphasis, this is not a poetic oversight. As the psalmist is praising God on Genesis 1, day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6, he hasn't forgot about day 7. What's going on here? Because I believe that he's communicating to us that praise is not just reserved for a Sabbath day. Praise is to be an everyday life of delightful intimacy with God. Praise is not just a Sunday thing at church. It is a Monday thing at work or at school. I think he's saying deeply as he presses into God the worker that our workplaces, our image-bearing workplaces, are to be praise places. So when you do your work, paid or unpaid, whether you leave the house or you go someplace or you go to school tomorrow, kids, will you take a praiseful heart with you? Christian work is not only good work well done, but a praiseful heart that worships God in what we do, while we do it, and who we do it with. 
If you practice the discipline of morning and evening prayer we talked about in an earlier message, in the morning you will prime the pump of praise in your heart for the day ahead. And it will sit on your shoulder, tucked into your heart as you leave in the morning. Notice also in Psalm 104 what is also not mentioned, and that is God's salvation work. Hmm. Why? It's not that God's redemptive work here in the Psalms is not mentioned or that it doesn't elicit praise. It does in other Psalms. What is going on here? The psalmist's focus here in Psalm 104 is now for us who are the redeemed to join with all creation cheering on God and praising Him. If you look carefully and have your text open, you will notice a grammatical shift in verse 31. It's explicit, emphatic in the Hebrew. It is a time where the psalmist now encourages us to join him in taking on the role of a cheerleader. This is not just kingdom chiefs. This is kingdom God. Cheering God on to delight in God's person and his ongoing creative masterpiece that is unfolding in time and space. Look at me at verse 31. Notice the two words, may. May, he's listening that, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. You go, hmm. The word translated rejoice, in English, it's a little bit vanilla, but it brings in this sense, a sense of rapturous and giddy delight. It's what you do at that touchdown or that home run. It's when you scream like this with extraordinary delight. It is joy uncontainable. It is a cosmic dance of praise. In Job, the Old Testament book, Job, chapter 38, verse 7, God gives us an awestruck glimpse of a dance of creation at the dawn of creation that continues to this moment. He looks back in the dawn of creation, and God says to Job these words, when the morning stars sang together, and all the angels of God shouted for joy. When we praise God, we attentively join in an ongoing cosmic dance of praise. In a sense, we never praise God alone. Never. We simply join in an orchestra of praise already in process since the dawn of time. Psalmist encourages to jump in the dance floor and start in with them. The music's playing. We join in what the New Testament Hebrew writer said with such mystery but such poetic precision, that great and mysterious cloud of witnesses surrounding us. In a way that transcends time itself, we join with the psalmist and the cloud of witnesses to the music of creation under God's rule, bearing the mark of his glory. Notice how attentive the psalmist is in his praise to God. We could go through each section. The mighty forces of the sea, sky and wind are his, verse 3 and 4. He gives water and uh, dwelling to his creation, plants and animals, verse, 
verses 10 through 13, and wine, oil, bread. You just go all the way through it. Notice the attentive detail. And if we are out of step, if our praise is anemic, we can be sure God is out of sight and out of mind the vast majority of our day. The truth is, praise reminds us and jolts us to say, are you paying attention to me? Most of us simply are not paying attention to him. And you can be assured that a life that lacks attentiveness will be a life that lacks praise. Praise begins and ends with attentiveness. I was reminded of that this week, I mean, humbly. Dripping with irony. I was uh, working on my sermon this week. And sometimes you want to know how the sausage is made. It's made in bits and pieces. Uh, I was in Virginia for a video curriculum of faith and work that we're doing. And there was a break, and I was sitting in a common room, starting in with my little computer. And I was just getting in the rhythm of thinking about my message, starting to write. And all of a sudden, cotton picking, I'm interrupted. Tim, a member of the production staff, Crazy Brit screams out, Dr. Zhivago! I'm like, whoa! First thought I was kind of miffed. And then I heard it. In the background. The beautiful musical score created by Maurice Chari for the Academy Award-winning classic, Dr. Zhivago. Stunning music. Filling the air. I have no idea how long it had been going on. But the truth was, I had completely tuned it out. And then I thought of something that hit me hard. See, it's one thing to be so plugged in and so tuned out to a classic piece of music in the background. But it is quite something else to be tuned out to the praise-filled music resounding through the universe. In my plugged-in life, I'm often tuning God out. How about you? In many ways, too much of, and I'm a pastor, goodness. In many ways, too much of my daily life is filled with so much noise of my own self-absorption and importance. And too little of my life is attentive to the wonder and works of God all around me. What an impoverished life I live. See, what we really love, we pay very close attention to. What we really love, we truly praise. But notice how the psalm not only probes what we praise God for, the psalmist actually guides us now in how we praise God. Three action steps flow at the end of this psalm, and I want to encourage you to apply these to your life and me. First, the psalmist says, sing to him, sing to God. Notice verse 33, he says, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. Does the psalmist's emphasis here on singing surprise you? 
See, singing is a big deal to us, right? As image bearers of God, why wouldn't we think that singing is a big deal to God? Singing is a part of our life. We're hardwired for it from creation. Songs are sung at weddings, right? Beautiful songs. We dance to all kinds of fun songs that mean a lot to us. Songs are sung at memorial services. And yes, we sing songs like the Star Spangled Banner or America the Beautiful at Sports Contest. So the melodies and lyrics are wired into our brains and they quickly come to our lips when a favorite song comes on the radio, in our car or some other device, on the way home from work or school. All of us were created to sing. All of us can sing. Most of us can be comforted in making a joyful noise unto the Lord, as we say. But hear me carefully. Many of us don't sing much because we feel awkward singing. Because we live in such a performance culture. I'm all for beautiful voices. What a stunning gift to hear someone sing beautifully. But when it comes to songs and praise, it's not about performing before a large audience. It's about expressing your love and devotion to your audience of one. Singing and praise are closely tied together. And I believe singing is an important spiritual discipline we would be well to embrace. It's instructive to me that the Psalms were compiled more to be sung than to be read. In fact, the Greek word that is translates the Hebrew title for the Psalms is psalmoi, which means to sing precisely. So the psalmists were not only a prayer book, they were designed to be a songbook. <laughs> Think with me for a moment about the importance of singing in the Bible. We could go all the way through the Bible. The book of Job, as I mentioned, the angels sing at the dawn of creation and continue to sing. Deborah in the book of Judges sings a song of praise. Moses and David speak words of praise and song, sing songs. In Psalm 511, our morning prayer we mentioned in the rhythm of prayer says, all who take refuge in you, let them sing for joy in the morning. Psalm 146.2 says, I will sing my praises to God. 147, sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing a new song. Jesus sang a lot. We don't see that explicitly in the Gospels, but as a rabbi in the synagogues in the prayer book, he sang too. We know that. In the book of Acts, chapter 16, verse 25, isn't it interesting that Silas and Paul are imprisoned and the text says they were praying and what? And singing hymns to God. Colossians 3.16 describes the local churches and they were singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Revelation 15.3, the last book of the Bible, we hear this beautiful picture, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. That's Jesus. Think with me for a moment. Some things need to be sung and can't just be said. I remember Liz and I going to the very first performance of Handel's Messiah at Kaufman Performing Arts Center. It was unbelievable. But imagine if there had been no singing and only someone up on the stage reciting words to us. What a difference that would have made. One of the apps I love on my iPhone is Pandora. And when I travel, I often 
put my iPhone by my bedstand that wakes me up now with its alarm. I've kind of figured that out. And after my alarm goes off, I tap my Pandora app and I listen to the singing of hymns and praise songs as I get ready for my day. I often hum along, sing very softly lest other people hear me. And I often sing softly a song to God from a heart of devotion I learned many years ago. And it goes like this. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul. Rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. At first service, I started crying on that. I made it through that one. (laughs) Peaceful singing and praiseful singing It expresses your love and devotion to God. You may not think you have a great voice, but the Heavenly Father wants you to wake up in the morning and sing to Him, and He's listening for you to sing. Secondly, besides singing to God, the psalmist says, delight in God. Delight in God. Look at verse 34. May my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Friends, the poetic language of this Hebrew text is the delight of two lovers. English is so limiting here, so let me pack it down just a little bit. The English translation is so limited. The Hebrew text translated meditation, this Hebrew word often is people singing quietly in the Bible. I think a better translation with all due respect is the songs we sing or the song I sing, my song of praise. That's how I translate it. And also the Hebrew word translated pleasing alludes to the pleasantness of sleep and evening. Do you hear the joy and pleasure of lovers? That's the picture. There is a rapturous delight of joy in praising God. C.S. Lewis, the Oxford professor, speaks brilliantly into what I think is the crescendo idea of Psalm 104. And here's what he says, and I'd like to read it. It's a little longer, but listen carefully because it's absolutely brilliant. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because... The praise not merely expresses, but completes its enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it's expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then to have to keep silent because the people you care for it no more than for a tin can in a ditch. Or to hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. Psalm 104 invites us to delight. What do you give God who has everything? Somehow he wants your delight. Lastly, bless him. Notice how the psalm ends, how it begins. What does it mean to bless God? Blessing is a churchy word, but it's used all the way through the Old Testament, 400 times plus. This word appears, it means to have adoration, gratitude for someone. When we bless God, we not only praise and adore him, we align our hearts and will with him. We increasingly love what Jesus loves. And Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer, and he begins with blessing God. He uses the same language that Psalm 104 ends with. 
Our Father who art in heaven, here's the last words of this psalm, praise the Lord, Hallel, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We bless God when we embrace the gospel. When we place our trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we bless him. We bless God when we become his yoked apprentice, when we learn to live our lives like Jesus would if he were us. We bless God when we walk and work in the power of the Holy Spirit. We bless him when the fruits of the Spirit are displayed. We bless God when we do good work every day, and we bless God when we share the good news of the gospel with others. Let me suggest a couple ways, a couple quick practical ways that you can cultivate a more praiseful life. First, why not start your morning prayer? I hope you are embracing a morning prayer rhythm in your life. Why not start your morning prayer with praise and end your evening prayer with praise? Psalm 4 and 5 do that if you follow that rhythm. Why not use an app on your phone or for praise music throughout the day or in the morning or whenever that works for you or an evening prayer? Why not have a CD or something like that in your car to fill your hearts with praise as you travel throughout the day? Why not let every prayer request you make start with praise? You know, God cares about our laundry list, but often we bring our laundry list rather than our loving adoration to him. So as you bring your laundry list of cares, may you bring your loving adoration at his feet. As you read your Bible, ask the question, what is in this passage that I can praise God for? Throughout the day, be attentive to God's presence and work around you and offer him up praise. We were created with praise in mind. We are redeemed to praise. And one day we will praise in all that we do and think perfectly, harmoniously in the new heavens and new earth. No wonder we have such a longing for home. Praise reorders what we love. It refocuses our faith. It re-energizes our hope. And the truth be told, what we love, we praise. So let's get our praise on. Okay? Let's pray. Father, teach us what it means to be attentive to you, to your word, to the world around us, to the magnificence of your creation and presence. Help us to begin to grasp how puny we are, yet significant we are because of your love and how immensely great you are.